Thanks, you guys. That was nice. Okay, I'm going to see <clears throat> if I can do this right. How about them? Jeez. You guys! What an exciting week! It was even more exciting for a lifelong Bears fan. <laughs> I, I appreciate that you guys have adopted us into this kingdom, I guess is what we call it. Um, it's been a great joy because I have never experienced anything like this in my life. Um, been a, been a Bears fan my whole life, been a Cubs fan. It's been, it's been hard, you guys. It's been really hard. Um, and I know, I heard that Dan has been kind of throwing me under the bus because he's like, you know, Kristen's still a Bears fan. And it just, it like runs so deep, you know, like it's really deep within me. And so it, it will always and forever be like Bears, Chiefs, whoever the Packers are playing. Like, <laughs> that's just how I will always live my life. Um, hey, have you ever had an identity-defining moment? Like, like a moment where you went from, like you were this way and then you're that way. For, for me, I remember this so vividly. I had just uh, left the hospital with my firstborn, and I am in the back seat with my, my hand draped over the car seat, staring at this tiny thing and screaming at Dan to slow down because he's going 15 miles an hour and that was way too fast, right? And, and I'm sitting here and I'm looking at this child and I'm shocked that they let us leave the hospital with this thing. And it's dawning on me that there's no adult, there's no adult at home waiting for me, right? Like, this is our responsibility. I am now a parent. And that realization crashes down on me and like that, that's an identity defining moment. I was not a parent and now I'm a parent and whew, that's heavy. If you had something like that, maybe it was your wedding day where this is now official. There's somebody else that I have to worry about and think about their life as, as important as my life or that moment that you crossed the stage and you, you got a diploma and you're now officially a high school graduate or a college graduate, or a grad school graduate. You know, those, those moments where we shift from one to another. It, it could have been for you the, the day that an adoption became finalized, and that child became completely and forever yours. These are significant moments in our lives. And, and I thought that it'd be helpful for us to take a look at an identity-defining moment in the life of Peter. Peter is the guy who wrote the letter, 1 Peter, right? We're all on the same page with that? Good. No? Yeah, we got that, right? Okay, so we're in, a, we're in a series here at this church where we are studying this letter from Peter. And so I want us to take a moment and to uh, think about or to, to remember this moment in time that was an identity-defining moment for Peter. Now, we could turn in scripture, but I'd rather just tell it to you. So this is in Matthew 16, and I'm going to be telling you from the KJV, that's the Kristen Jacobson version. Um, so if you're wondering whether or not this is for real, you can go to Matthew 16 later, okay? So Jesus is with his disciples, and he's just walking along. Some, sometimes, like, the best lessons that Jesus has are when they're just walking along, <laughs> So they're, so they're walking together, and Jesus looks at his disciples, and he, he says to them, you guys, 
who do people say that I am? And at this point in the ministry, people have started to hear about this guy who's teaching some incredible things and performing some miracles. And so word has spread and there's some rumblings. And, and so Jesus says, what is everybody saying about me? And the disciples, I can just imagine that they pause, maybe kind of side-eye one another because they've been around Jesus they have seen him completely own the Pharisees by like asking trick questions and backing them into a corner. So I wonder for a second if they were like, you answer it, I don't wanna answer it, you go. But one of them eventually does and they say, well, some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Jesus takes this in. And he looks at them and he says, who do you say that I am? Now, this is the moment. This is the moment where our guy Peter steps forward. Ever the overachiever, he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Way to go, Peter. Yes, nailed it. Jesus responds to him after he has rightly spoken who Jesus is, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because you didn't find this out on your own. Somebody else didn't explain this to you. No, no. My father in heaven revealed this to you. You are no longer Simon. You are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. How much do you envy Peter? <laughs> what would you give to have the savior of the world shape your identity in that way? How incredible must that have been for him? That is an identity-defining moment for Peter, and I think it must have been ringing in his ears while he wrote this letter. He must have remembered that moment because what he has to say for us this morning is that while we can say we envy Peter, we wish we had that moment, the reality is that if you know and believe and follow Jesus, he has shaped your identity. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to see that our, our identity is tied to what we think about Jesus, what Jesus thinks about us, and what Jesus has called us to. Here's the first thing I want you to see. Are you with me this morning? Your identity is tied to what you call Jesus. That's where we're gonna start. Your identity is tied to what you call Jesus. Now, it's been said that the most important thing about you is what you think about God. Whatever comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And that's what's on the table here in this moment with Peter and Jesus. Who do you say that I am? And certainly for you and for me, thousands of years later, this is the most important question that we could answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? I want you to see what Peter's doing in this letter because he's kind of expounding on this right away in chapter two. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along, we're in chapter two of 1 Peter and I'm going to jump around a little bit, but hopefully we'll have everything right here on the screen so you can see it. All right, this is chapter two and we're going to start here in verse six. Peter is going to quote an Old Testament passage. Can I be super honest with you right now? I probably shouldn't admit this as someone who teaches the Bible. 
But sometimes when I'm reading the New Testament and all of a sudden they're quoting the Old Testament, I am confident I'm about to get very confused. Anyone else feel that way? And you're like, you know what, we'll just skip down. Let's just skip and go to like the next part where I can tell what's happening. Okay, don't do that. Don't tune out because this is really cool what Peter's doing here. So he's quoting an Old Testament prophecy. That means that this prophet who's speaking is speaking on behalf of the Lord. Okay, so when we see quotes here, we can be assured this is from the Lord himself. So he says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this is Peter now talking, you guys who are reading my letter, now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. All right, let's break this down a little bit. What this prophecy is talking about, when he says, I lay a stone in Zion, Zion was like the pinnacle for the Jewish people. They would have been looking forward to the city of God. So this is something in the future that they are hoping for, okay? And God is saying, yeah, I am going to set a foundation with a cornerstone. Someone is coming who will be the foundation. All right, this is where we do participation. Are you ready? This is Sunday school answer. Who's the cornerstone? You guys, excellent job. That's right. It's Jesus. Okay, if it doesn't feel obvious to you from here, we have several other places in scripture where other authors in the Bible explain to us this is exactly what the prophet was talking about. That one day there would be someone and that someone is Jesus. And look, if you believe in him, if you say, yeah, he is who he says he is, and I'm gonna build my life on that foundation, you will not be put to shame. But there's another group of people represented in this passage. Those who reject the cornerstone. Those who say, not worth me building my life on that. And for them, this is not a firm foundation. He becomes a stumbling block. So let me bottom line it. There are two types of people in this world. People who believe Jesus is who he said he was and people who don't. It is crucial for us to answer that question. You see, Jesus came into this world, he came onto the scene and he didn't do it quietly. The things that he taught, the claims that he made about himself, the audacity that he had to look at people and say he forgives their sins, the miracles that he performed, these things were not done with an intention for the people who would see them to remain indifferent. That's not an option for us. You either have to believe in this person who is worthy of becoming your foundation or he will become a stumbling block. But you have to make a decision either way. And so I, I wanna read this because I wanna make sure I get this right. Because so this past week I heard something and it kind of reminded me of this truth that we, we have to make a decision. It goes like this, you can doubt the chiefs. You can dislike the chiefs. You can disrespect the chiefs, but you're gonna have to what? You're gonna have to deal with the chiefs. Guys, don't I act like a chief stand? This is good, right? I'm like a part of you, okay. Hey, it's not, un it's not unlike what we gotta do with Jesus. 
You're going to have to deal with this. You have to make a decision. C.S. Lewis puts it away that's a bit more reverent. Let me read what he says. He says, either this man, Jesus, was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. See, Jesus demands that we respond to him. And we cannot remain indifferent. He cannot, he either is the foundation that you build your life on or he's an obstacle in your way, but he can't be less than that. And listen, your identity and my identity depend first and foremost on how we respond to that question. Who do you say that I am? Now listen, if you say, yeah, I believe that he is who he said he is, then listen, your identity is tied to what he calls you. I want you to see this here. And, and as we move on through this passage, I want you to keep in mind who it is that Peter is talking to. Remember, this is a letter that was written thousands of years ago, and so we have to sort of go through time and space back to where they were in their culture and context to really understand what's happening here. So the people that Peter is writing to, they are, they are firmly in the camp of, yes, Jesus. We are going to build our lives on this foundation. But this has come at a great cost. They have now descended to the lowest rungs of society because they have chosen to follow Jesus. And so it's to a group like that who is, has experienced great persecution. They have been exiled. They have been dispersed. They have lost nearly everything. And it's to them that Peter writes this. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that in a second. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Listen to this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Can you imagine being that group of people? Destitute, abandoned, completely hopeless in their worldly circumstances, and then receiving a letter like this. Look, at, let's go back to that thing that he says. Remember, they are, they are homeless, okay? They are culturally homeless, politically homeless, socially homeless. And Peter says, no, no, no. That may be what it feels like right now, but I want you to see, you are actually being built into a spiritual house. You may feel isolated and alone and cast aside, but let me remind you that you have a place in the home and family of God. Let's go to the next thing here because, look, they are what? They are discarded by society, cast out, and yet he says, no, no, you are a chosen people. Let's think about where they had been religiously. If they were 
around the Jewish world, they would have felt like they had to do and perform in order to be approved by God. If they were a part of whatever other religions were there, it didn't matter because whoever, wherever they were a part of, now in Christ, they are a royal priesthood. They are coming with diverse ethnicities represented in this group, and yet they are now one holy nation. And finally, imagine how much their spirits would soar at this news right here that where the world has cast them aside, turned their back on them, persecuted them, God has called them his special possession. Man, that's an incredible letter to receive, right? To hear that this is what the God of the universe calls you. Now for us, thousands of years later, how does this apply to us, right? Because we're not in that same place. We aren't persecuted daily in the same way. Our livelihoods are not stripped away because we have claimed Jesus as our Lord. So we need to do some work to figure out what is, how does this apply to us? And I wonder if, if whereas this group of people who is, is hopeless and destitute would be completely thrilled and eager to hear about their spiritual reality. I think a lot of times we aren't as interested because we end up being very satisfied with the place that we're in, right? With the worldly identity that we've been given. Peter is saying to to this group of people that your worldly circumstances must not dictate your identity. Your spiritual reality dictates your identity. But for us, We're kind of comfortable with our worldly circumstances dictating our identity, aren't we? And we need to maybe reorder, reprioritize that in our own lives. Here's what I mean. Let me bring it to like real base level for you. This is what it looks like in my life when I have found that my worldly identity has been more, become more important to me than my spiritual identity, okay? So, this past week, it was Valentine's Day. And I, I, maybe I should preface this by saying, like, one of my worldly identities is that I'm a mom. That's a great thing. I love being a mom. I love my kids most every day. Um, so it's Valentine's Day, and I am scrolling through, like, whatever social media, and a friend that I went to high school with has posted this thing about Valentine's Day. And she's got pictures of her family, and she explains that every year on Valentine's Day, she makes a three-course meal for her family. She spends the whole week before preparing for this day. She has specific memory verses about love that they've memorized for the whole month of February, and it all comes to this culmination at this lovely dinner where each child sits down, and she has taken the time to interview everyone in the family so they get a booklet with written out everything that everybody loves about that specific child. And I am like, my kids got a Hershey kiss in their lunch and a high five on their way out the door. Like, I am failing miserably. (laughs) Now, I'm kidding, but I'm kind of not kidding. Because that Valentine's Day, whatever, Valentine's Day is great. I'm not really worried about how I celebrate or don't celebrate. I think my kids will be okay even if we don't celebrate love in that way once a year. But listen, can I tell you that there are other times when I'm like, well, my house isn't as clean as that. 
My kids aren't as well-behaved as that. My marriage doesn't look as good as that. I can't take my kids on that kind of vacation. I, can't, I don't wear those kind of clothes. My skin is not that good. Do I do all of that day in and day out? And do I find myself descending into this prison of comparison only to reemerge and realize the only identity I have been thinking about is what the world says about me and not what God says about me? You better believe I do that. You do that too? Is it just me? So maybe it's not like Instagram for you and all these like mom things that I would say is my biggest struggle. Maybe it's more like you're scrolling through Zillow and you're like, look at that house. I wish I could have ordered that house. Or you're scrolling through LinkedIn. Let me look at all these positions that other people are getting hired and I'm still waiting for this promotion. Or you're seeing the vacation that your neighbor takes or your friend takes or your sister-in-law takes or whoever takes and you are constantly wishing that you had more than you have or that you were more than you think that you are. And all Peter wants you to see is that if all of that is stripped away, who you are and what you have been called in Christ is more than enough that you have been called chosen, accepted, royal, holy, a people for his own possession. And whatever it is in this world that fights for your truest identity cannot compare to what the God who created you and loves you and saved you says about you. Your identity has to be tied to what he says you are. So, I don't know where I'm at. I got all preachy just now. Hang on, let me find my spot. Uh, oh, way past that, okay. Um, here's the thing. If you call him Lord, then you can receive that identity that he's given you. And, and I want, there's another thing that's really important for us to see what Peter says here, because he acknowledges that there is a shift that when we call Jesus Lord and he calls us these things, there's a shift from one space and identity that we were to another. This is what he says in verse 10. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, this is like a like very, very obvious contrast. You were once over here and now you're over there. And we could just move on and be like, yes, amen, I was that and now I'm not. But there's something really cool happening that if we dig a little deeper, I want you to see. See, those words that he's chosen, not my people and no mercy, those ways of describing our previous reality are chosen so carefully. When, when, uh, when Peter writes this, he's actually using words from an Old Testament story. So we're going to go back to the Old Testament for a sec, okay? It's from the story. Don't make that face. They're so rich. Stick with me. Okay, so, so listen. I'm, it's not going to be confusing, I promise. Okay, so there is a prophet Hosea in the Old Testament. The way that God used prophets is that he would often give them words to say to speak to his people. Okay, that's one way. Another way he used them is he would make them use their lives as a living illustration of what he wanted the people of Israel to know. Okay, so Hosea is one where his life becomes an illustration. Israel had stopped worshiping God. 
they had found their way to all the other gods around and they were no longer worshiping the one true God. And God is not happy about this, as you can imagine. And so he goes to Hosea and he says, my people have been unfaithful to me. They are supposed to be committed to me and me alone. So I want you to show that unfaithfulness by going and marrying a prostitute. Okay, Hosea does it. He goes, he marries a prostitute, and get this, he has children with this prostitute. And God says, this is what I want you to name these children. It's some Hebrew, so I wanna make sure I get it right. Okay, so he says, I want you to name those children Lo-Ramah and Lo-Ami. What does that mean? Not my people, no mercy. Does that sound familiar? So when these people are hearing this letter, they are brought back to the story of Hosea, to where God had said, name these people, name name these children, not my people and no mercy. Can you imagine living life as those poor kids? Can we just stop and think about that for a second? I mean, like today, Naming kids is all about how unique and bizarre you can name your children. But really, for them, it was like all about the meaning. And so when they're called out, hey, no mercy, come here. Hey, not my people, come here. That is a constant reminder to anybody who would hear that the nation of Israel has been condemned. Those playdates are going to be few and far between for these poor children. That is a constant reminder every time that name was called that they had been condemned because of their unfaithfulness. Now, this is what Peter wants them to be reminded of. That there was a time when they were without mercy and there was a time when they were not a part of the people of God. And guess what? Same is true for you and me. There was a time when you had no mercy. There was a time when you were not a part of the people of God. That was our reality. We were spiritually exiled. We were condemned by our sin. But listen to this. There was another child who was born. And God named that child too. God said to call his name Jesus because he will save his people from his sins. And so when that name was called, no longer were we reminded that we were condemned in our identity. When that name was called, we are reminded that we have a faithful God even when we are faithless. We have a God who remains faithful to us and he has made a way for us to have relationship with him despite our sin and our brokenness. And how did he do it? How did he do it? He had that baby grow up and live a perfect righteous life and take on the ridicule and the scorn of the world. And when he was on that cross, what happened? He received no mercy. He was treated as if he was not part of the people of God. He said, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, we are given a rescue so that we no longer have to live without mercy. We can worship the Lord in the fact that we have been included as a part of his people. That is what shapes 
your identity. Listen, you call Jesus Savior, he calls you saved. You call Jesus Lord, he calls you forgiven. You call Jesus Father, he calls you friend. That is your identity. He changed your name, he changed who you were. And that's what happened to Peter. Let's go back to that story, right? With Peter, they're walking along, and what does Jesus say to him? You are no longer Simon, you are now Peter. There's some wordplay happening here. You are no longer Simon. What does that mean? Tiny little pebble. You are now Peter, big old rock. Because of his acknowledgement of what Jesus had done and who Jesus was, God completely changed his identity. And with that change, he gave him a new purpose. This is the last thing I want you to see. Our identity, yeah, it's tied to what do you say about Jesus? And yeah, it's tied to what does Jesus say about you? But this is the last thing. Our identity is tied to what Jesus calls us to. The work is not finished when God calls you into the family. He has given you a mission. And we, like, this is a a normal thing, okay? Like, I feel like this is a normal idea that these two things go together. If you are called a mom, you are called to nurture and care for your kids and protect them and apparently plan an elaborate Valentine's Day dinner. I mean, these are the things that you're called to. If you're called a friend, you are called to love and support and pray for and be there through thick and thin for your friend. If you're called an employee, you are called to be trustworthy and to be responsible and to do what's expected of you. If you're called a part of the chief's kingdom, you are called to completely neglect your responsibilities in the middle of a work day and go down to the parade and celebrate your Super Bowl winning team. Like this, this is part of what your purpose is, okay? This is, this is under, like we, we get this idea that, that when we've been given a, an a identity, it comes with a mission. And Peter wants us to see here what our mission is. I want you to look back at verse four. With me, this is a passage I think that can be a little confusing, but this is actually what we've been called to. So as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So I want you to follow this logic with me. If you have called Jesus your foundation, he has called you a living stone, and your purpose is to be built into a spiritual house. What in the world does that mean? Am I right? Anybody? Like, cool, that's a weird analogy. What are we supposed to do with that? Okay, this is such a crucial illustration, and it's so specific, I think, to this group of people, but it speaks to us today. First and foremost, the idea that Peter is offering to us is that what we have been called to is something greater than ourselves. I think there is a tendency for us to say, like, yeah, I love Jesus, it's great, but, like, I'm not really in community, and I'm not really a part of, like, of anything, you know, like, I just, it's just like me and Jesus, and we're good. Okay, that is so foreign from anything that the Bible speaks about. 
You may have heard an illustration used to talk about the church. We, we say the body of Christ. Have you heard that before? There's a passage in scripture that explains it as like, you need a hand and you need a foot and you need an eye. This is again the KJV. If you haven't noticed, that's not exactly what the passage says. But the point is, is that we need every part of the body and that we all come together and Christ is the head. And it's similar here is that we all are stones as a part of a spiritual house. And we can't do that on our own. It's hard for us because I think that we, we have been, I don't know how preachy I'm going to get, Johnny, so you just might be there for a little bit. <clears throat> okay. When in the culture and in the society that we live in, we value autonomy. We value freedom. We value independence. We don't want to have to own up to anybody. We want to do it on our own. Right? Are you with me? You feel that in the water that you're swimming in? And so this reality that you as a follower of Jesus has been called to something where you have to link arms with the people around you, sometimes that can cause us to this. There's no word. It's like this, you know, like, I don't know if I'm ready for that. But there is such beauty in this reality that you have been called to something beyond yourself. Now listen, there's some some interesting language here. He says, you're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. All of that there is temple language. Remember these people, how they interacted with God is that they had to go to the temple. They had to go to the temple where a priest would offer a sacrifice on their behalf, and that is how they engaged with God. But Peter, in this illustration, is completely flipping that on its head. Because of Jesus, we don't now go to a place to encounter God. We are the place where we encounter God. You hear that? And so this means that you and you and you and me we are a part of this spiritual house. That means that when you meet here in this room, yeah, you're a spiritual house, but even more, when you're out there in the lobby and you're talking about the crisis that is happening in your friend's life, when you meet over dinner and you are, even people who do not belong to Heartland, if they are a part of the people of God, we link arms and we can pray for one another. We can celebrate when we see God work. We can hold one another accountable. We can confess our sins one to another. We don't need a priest. There is no hierarchy. We can approach God together. And that is the greatest thing you can be called to. To offer that for one another and to live in a place and in a community where that's offered to you. So listen, if you've called Jesus your cornerstone, if you've chosen to build your life on him, listen, he has called you a living stone. He has included you as a part of a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. And he has set before you the mission of building a place where others can encounter God along with you.
Let me pray for us and we'll end in worship. Father, thank you for this truth this morning. Thank you for for calling us your own. God, I thank you that you have included us in the people that you've called, that you've called us a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and that you've set before us this mission, Lord. Would you help us, Father, to see this week the ways that we can live this out to your glory. In Jesus' name.